David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Balaam of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinab, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Thanks, Yvette. Well, uh, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. Please keep that passage open in front of you. Um, we're going to uh, have a look at this part of God's Word as we continue our series through to Samuel. Uh, for the sake of those who don't know me, my name's Jono. And uh, I'm uh, the, uh, the lead pastor of our Harrington Park congregation and uh, the rector of our, our parish. And it's great to come across and, uh, and share with you this morning. Uh, it's good, always good to, to come and be with my brothers and sisters at Gledswood Hills. And uh, through this time as Gav's away on long service leave, um, I'm here a little bit more often. Although there's been a lot of coming and going with holidays and youth camps and whatnot. So, um, but I am going to be around a bit more in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, let's pray now as we come to consider this, uh, this passage before us. Will you, you pray with me again? Uh, Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through it. We thank you for this time and we ask that you give us insight, that you give us understanding, that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would respond to you as you call us to. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a, a disturbing couple of weeks uh, for religious freedom in this country uh, with the, the forced resignation of uh, Andrew Th uh, Thorburn. Uh, the, uh, the week before last, the short-lived CEO of Essendon Football Club, uh, he was forced to resign after one day in the job uh, when the club decided that the conservative Christian values which his church held could not be tolerated by his club. Uh, the, in short, he was forced to make a decision. He couldn't be both a Christian and the CEO of the football club, and so he resigned. Now, of course, the, uh, the usual suspects, such as Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, was quick to label Thorburn's conservative Christian views as absolutely appalling, hatred and bigotry, comments which are, well, a little... Uh, more than a little ironic. Uh, and, but it is really a disturbing illustration of the rising intolerance in our culture. 
It's a commitment to my position, to my view and an intolerance of someone whose position differs from my own. And it seems that the one whose view is most intolerable is in fact God. You know, I think what I think and who is God to think differently? God, it seems, is supposed to be answerable to us. Which, if you think about it, I guess, is really at the heart of the human condition, which the Bible calls sin. A commitment to, to myself, to, to my own position, to my thoughts, my opinions, and we're really a resistance to God and a questioning of him. Now, we, uh, we see it quite blatantly in the intolerance towards a Christian football club CEO. But I wonder actually if the, a similar bent towards self, towards me, towards what I think, and a, and a denial or a questioning of God, I wonder if that's a bit more present in our own hearts and lives than we like to think. What is your attitude toward God? Is he answerable to us or are we answerable to him? This passage before us this morning, 2 Samuel 6, it may cause us to, to reflect on how we regard God. Do we take him seriously? Now, I, I, I'd be guessing that uh, we, we, we may not dismiss and reject him outright, but is our attitude towards him perhaps a little casual? I hope this part of God's word will help us to, to reflect on this. Now, at first glance, uh, we may think this passage before us is a little bit strange and obscure. The, uh, the movements of this ancient ark of God from this backwater of, Jeruz of, of Israel in uh, Baalah, uh, heading up towards Jerusalem. It's a bit strange. It's a bit obscure. It may be a bit disturbing. As John uh, highlighted that we've got this poor guy, Uzzah, being struck down after taking hold of the ark. This is actually a highly significant moment in uh, the, for the nation of Israel and a highly significant moment for the new King David. We read uh, two weeks ago in uh, the beginning of chapter 5 how David had finally become king over all of Israel. And uh, last week we saw how uh, David had conquered Jerusalem and, and David had defeated the Philistines because the Lord God was with him. God was establishing David's kingship. And so here we have in chapter 6, David acts to, to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, to the capital, to the centre of the nation of Israel. And this is a big deal. It's so much of a big deal that it says there in, in verse 1 that David again, again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Uh, this is a big event going on here. I think the, uh, the use of the word again there is harking back to the last time all Israel were gathered, the beginning of chapter 5 when, when all Israel gathered and made David king. Here we have an event of, of similar magnitude, similar significance. Is David's brought together all the able young men of Israel, or if you have an ESV translation, it might say chosen men. These were the, the warriors. These are the, the best soldiers, the elite forces. And as they gather together, we might be expecting a great battle, especially when with this number that's mentioned, 30,000. This is significant. 30,000 was the number of Israelite soldiers that were slaughtered on a previous occasion when the Ark of God was on the move, when it was captured by the Philistines back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
And I wonder if this detail here is included to remind us of that event. 30,000 chosen men of Israel gathered by David. But it's not for a battle. They're gathered to bring up the ark of God to Jerusalem. Now, why is this so significant? Why, this, why does it warrant this, this gathering together of 30,000 chosen men from all Israel? Well, it's because of what the ark is, or rather really what the, what the ark represents. Uh, the ark was a, uh, a wooden box covered in gold. Here's a, a replica of it. Uh, it was approximately 1.3 metres long by about 80 centimetres wide and 80 centimetres high. And the, the Ark of God, or also known as the Ark of the Covenant, was constructed according to, to God's detailed instructions, which he gave to, in the days of Moses. And its significance was that it was a symbolic reminder to Israel of the presence of God, that God was with his people. And it was, notice verse 2, called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, where you see in your Bibles, uh, capital L-O-R-D, that's, that represents God's personal name. Uh, Yahweh is the, the best uh, guess at, at how it was pronounced. And God's name, the Lord Yahweh, reveals who he is. I mean, that's how, that's how names work. If you meet someone new, one of the first things you'll do is Tell them your name. You will reveal that to them and enable them to know you. So God's name, Yahweh, is tied to, to the revelation of who he is. Uh, like in Exodus chapter 34, uh, in Exodus 34, Moses wanted to see God's glory. And, uh, and what, what the Lord did was he, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming his name. Proclaiming his character, revealing who he is, his, his character, his goodness, his glory. He said, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God's name is, firstly, it's about the revelation of who he is. But secondly, and related to that, his name is about his reputation, his, his character, his, his actions. So the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was a reminder of God's character, his reputation, and the covenant that he made with his people Israel. Thirdly, the Ark represented the rulership of God over Israel. Notice again there, verse 2, it says, The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, the one enthroned is the king. The ark of God reminds Israel that, that Yahweh is the true king over them. And so the significance of this gold-covered wooden box, this ark, is that it represents the presence of God with his people, his revelation to them, his reputation as the, the covenant-keeping God and his rulership over them as Lord and King. Do we see the significance here of, of the Ark? Now, for some 70 years, the Ark of the Covenant had been parked away in, in a backwater in Israel. From before the time of the reign of Saul, it had been largely absent from the life of Israel, stowed away at uh, the house of this guy, Abinadab, in Baalah, also known as Kiriath-Jerim. 
It appears to have been largely forgotten. But David, as he, as he becomes king over all Israel, wanted to change that. He wanted to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, bring the ark of God to the capital of the nation. The revelation, the reputation, the rulership of God was to be at the heart of the nation of Israel. It's a beautiful illustration of God's place in the life of his people. Is that echoed in our hearts and lives? The the revelation, the reputation, the rulership of God at the heart of our lives. Well, it's the significant moment for David. Uh, it's a significant moment for Israel. It warrants this great procession of these 30,000 soldiers. Next, in verse 3, we're given the details of the logistics of, of moving the ark. So verse 3 says, They set the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. Quite a lot of detail that's given here. You might think, well, why are we given all this detail of the logistics of, of how this is moved? I think we're meant to remember the account of the last time that the ark of God was moved. Back in 1 Samuel 6, I think the writer of 2 Samuel would reasonable and assuming that us as readers would, would be familiar with 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 6, the Philistines moved the ark of God. They placed it on a new cart to send it back to Israel. And it ended up at the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. It's the same phrase. It's used in 1 Samuel 7. These details are, are included here, I think, to remind us of that event. Will this be a repeat of that? Will this be a reversal of that? At any rate, if we if we know the instructions that God gave to his people about how the ark of God was to be moved, as we hear this, we ought to be feeling pretty nervous because this is pretty dodgy. You see, God gave Israel detailed instructions about the ark. In short, you could, you could summarize those instructions as no looking, no touching and no carts. Uh, firstly, the ark was not to be looked at. It was to be covered as it was moved. So Numbers 4 verse 5 says this, When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant law. Then they're to cover the curtain with a durable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over that and put the poles in place. So the Ark wasn't to be looked at by just anyone. Secondly, they weren't to touch the Ark of the Covenant. They were, to, they were to carry it using these long poles that were inserted into rings on the sides of the Ark. Numbers 4 verse 15 says, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy things and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites, they were one of the clans of the Levites, the priests, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the, notice, carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. So the warning is clearly there in God's word. No touching. Thirdly, no carts. Uh, there were some carts that were used by the Levites to move things around, but not for the ark. We see this in Numbers 7 verse 9 where it says, So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites. They were one of the clans. As their work required, he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merorites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. 
But Moses, notice, did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. God was very clear. And with that background in mind, when we read that they set the ark of God on a new cart, and it's repeated at the end of verse 4, the, the new cart with the ark of God on it, I think we're ought to be, we ought to be feeling pretty nervous. I mean, this was at best a, a rather casual attitude to God and his word. But the people were seemingly oblivious to the danger. They were celebrating, verse 5. They, oh, Sorry, next slide, uh, verse 5. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. What a party, what a cacophony. David, 30,000 young men, and notice all Israel celebrating with all their might. The party was going down at the Binadab's house that day. But then it all changed when they reached the threshing floor of Nacon. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What are we to make of this? It's a disturbing scene. I mean, there's Uzzah lying dead beside the ark of God. And maybe we, we, we struggle with this and think, well, gee, what was, what was he supposed to do? Was he, was he supposed to just kind of let the ark tumble off the cart? Why did God act in this way? Perhaps what's most disturbing for us is that the writer gives almost no explanation for, for why God did this. Other than to say that it was because of Uzzah's irreverent act or literally, as the ESV says, because of his error. Well, which error? Was, was there more going on in Uzzah's attitude, in his actions that we know that we're not told about? We may struggle with this and struggle with the, the, the lack of explanation here. But we need to remember that in the end, God is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is, he is the one whose revelation, whose reputation, whose rulership is, is over and above and beyond us. He, he's not obliged to win our approval. I think how we respond to this incident can actually be a good indication of, of whether or not we believe that. How do we have a, a casual attitude to God that domesticates him, that expects him to fit in with, with us and with what we think, how we reckon things should go. I think this little incident is a, is a reminder that, that we can't domesticate God. He is powerful. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Well, as we reflect on, on our response to this incident, to the, the minimal explanation that's given us, we are given the response of one person, the response of David. Notice there verse 8. It says, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez means out, breaking out. David, notice there he's angry against not the Lord, not against the Lord, um, as the Lord's anger was against Uzzah. He's angry because of 
the Lord's wrath. Or literally, because of the Lord's breaking out, which had broken out against Uzzah. Uh, it's interesting, the previous chapter, the Lord had broken out against the Philistines, David's enemies. And, and David was happy on that occasion. 5 verse uh, 20 says, So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim, which means the, the Lord breaks out. So David on that occasion was glad to have the Lord breaking out against his enemies. But this breaking out against Uzzah, he doesn't like it. He's, he's angry. And secondly, he's afraid, verse 9. Sorry, verse 9, uh, the right one? Yep, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So David uh, here abandons the mission, or at least for now, we'll see next week, uh, part two, second attempt. But David concludes that, well, he and, and the ark of God, that, that they, how can they be together? They can't be together after all. He's seen this, this outbreak of the holy wrath of God and his response is, well, somewhat understandably, to, to distance himself from it. And so instead of taking the ark to himself, to be with him, he takes it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, someone from the, the Philistine city of Gath. But then we see in the house of Obed-Edom that God is not only a holy God to be feared, he is, but he's also a good God to be rejoiced in. So we read verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Notice the presence of the Lord represented by the ark brings blessing. In this case, blessing to the household of a Philistine. I wonder if this is a little hint, a, a reminder that God's blessings will flow out from Israel to all the nations. At any rate, it shows this incident here shows us that, yes, the Lord is holy, but he's also good. He brings blessing. Uh, the children's uh, fantasy book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who's read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yep, some people are fans. If you haven't, it's an ex excellent series. Uh, early in the, uh, in the book, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe uh, Aslan, who C.S. Lewis, Lewis portrays Jesus as, as Aslan the Lion. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are describing Aslan to the children. And Mrs. Beaver says... If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And so the children ask whether he's safe. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's what we see here in 2 Samuel 6. God is not safe but he's good he's not domesticated and tame he's he's powerful he's strong he's good he's holy he's righteous he rules over all he's not safe in a domesticated way but he is good he's entirely trustworthy he's entirely faithful he brings blessing 
to his people. We need to grasp both sides of this. He's not safe, but he is good. There's a great phrase in, um, in Psalm 2, that great psalm, where it speaks of the Lord's rule over this world. And it says, it warns kings and, and rulers and, and anyone who would set themselves up against the Lord and against his king. It says in verse 11 of Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Celebrate with trembling or rejoice with trembling. The Lord is not safe and domesticated. It's right to, to tremble, but he's good. He brings blessing and so rejoice. Now, friends, if that was true for ancient Israel, how much more is that true for us, this side of the coming of Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of the ark of God, the one who perfectly reveals God to us, who shows us God's glory, his character, his, the fullness of his grace and his truth, the one who is enthroned as Lord and King over all creation. And Jesus is not safe. Uh, the Apostle John had a terrifyingly glorious vision of Jesus recorded in, in Revelation chapter 1. And his response to Jesus was this. It said, he writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus is, is powerful, but he's immensely and perfectly good. As John continues, then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, the, the, the living one, is so profoundly good that he died. He gave up his life for us. He was dead. He he gave up his life to take upon himself the wrath of God that we have evoked, invoked by all our, our thoughtlessness, our carelessness, our indifference, our arrogance, our de defiance against God. I mean, if we're honest, we're no better than Uzzah or David. And yet, in Jesus, we are far more blessed than Obed-Edom. Because we have the presence of the fulfillment of the ark with us. Through Jesus, we have been blessed with, with forgiveness, forgiveness of our sin, with life, both now and for all eternity. We have more reason to celebrate than, than Israel did on that day with their cymbals and castanets and harps and lyres. And we have the Lord Jesus. We have forgiveness. We have life. We have eternal blessing. So friends, rest in that knowledge and rejoice in him. But rejoice with trembling. What is your attitude towards God? It might be that for some here this, this morning, your attitude has been one of, of defiance or, or maybe apathy. Perhaps for others, it's, it, it's somewhat taking him for granted. I want to say, if that's the case, be, be warned. He is God and we are not. He's not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. And all of us ought to consider our attitude towards God. May it be that we rejoice in what he's given us in Jesus 
and that we rejoice with trembling. For he is the holy God. Let's pray. Let's come before him now in prayer. Our Lord God, you are the holy God over this world and over each of us. You are holy and righteous and just. And Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with the privilege of coming before you and calling you Father, our loving Heavenly Father. Now, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we've not regarded you as we ought. And we rejoice and thank you for the forgiveness, the life and blessing that you have given us in Jesus. Father, teach us to rejoice in this blessing and to do so with hearts that, that also tremble before you as our Lord and as our God. Father, we pray that we would honour you as God this day and in the days ahead. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.